0: My dying breath. (laughs) I will fight these guys. I will speak out. I will do everything that I humanly, physically, possibly can to right that situation for my grandbaby and for your potential future grandbabies and for everybody else's.
1: That's Alma Hasse from Payette County, Idaho. And this is the Halt the Harm podcast project from HealthTheHarm.net. I'm your host, Ryan Clover, and so excited to have you with us for these first few episodes. On today's episode, Alma Hasi joins us from Payette County, where she raises chickens, horses, and hay. Payette County is also the oil and gas epicenter of Idaho. Alma is a wife, mother, and grandmother, and when she spoke out against oil and gas at a public hearing, she was arrested, jailed, and then charged with trespass and resisting arrest. After a groundswell of community support, Payette County dropped the criminal charges, but now Alma is fighting back with a lawsuit, suing the county for false arrest, imprisonment, and malicious prosecution. Wow. Wow. Alma, welcome to Halt the Harm podcast.
0: Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, and um, I am really excited to be speaking with you, and I also know that you're one of the people who was awarded the uh, Community Sentinel Awards. So that's awesome. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. I am. I am honored. I am humbled. I am shocked and amazed and just, um, overall, beside myself, and <laughs> uh, very much looking forward to going to DC and um, and uh, accepting the the award. But I think probably more importantly, getting to put faces to names of people that I've spoken with over the years who have been helpful, and you know I've never had an opportunity to meet them. I'm really, really looking forward to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great because we network with people all the time, but don't always get to be in the same place. Exactly. So can you fill us in uh, some gaps from that introduction? Um, can you tell me a little bit more about who you are?
0: Well, um, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just basically um, your average ordinary citizen. I mean, a term that I've referred uh, to myself as in the past has been accidental activists, because I I feel like that's indeed what I am. Um, there, When my husband and I bought our farm in Idaho in 2005, unbeknownst to us, we moved near a very large factory farm, and I quickly found out that in Idaho, ag is king, and my neighbor was not a very good operator and some things went down and I just you know I thought it was a matter of making a couple calls and things would get taken care of but I found out that that's not how things work (laughs) and so and the more I dug and the more I educated myself the more I realized that you know there was only one way to make change and that was actual actually to roll my sleeves up and get to work and uh, that's what I did. In 2006, I founded an organization called uh, Idaho Residents, excuse me, Idaho Concerned Area Residents for the Environment, or ICARE. And ICARE's mission was uh, basically we were Idaho's uh, CAFO or factory farm watchdog organization. And that is what took my time basically until oil and gas arrived in Uh, Idaho in uh, 2009, 2010. And when I, and the more I learned about oil and gas, the more I realized that while CAFOs are really not uh, a good thing to have in one's community, that oil and gas development was far worse. (laughs) So, I then co-founded an organization called uh, IRAGE, Idaho Residents Against Gas Extraction, and for the longest time, uh, me and Tina Fisher, my co-founder, were sort of the um, only voices in Idaho speaking out against oil and gas uh, development. And we felt like, you know, we were out there in the middle of the ocean on our raft with a bunch of holes in it and no oars and no signals, <laughs> or nothing, but um, realized that it was very important that we, you know, educate and keep talking and keep alerting uh, as much as we possibly could. And, you know, I'm thankful that we did that because, you know, I, it's finally started to, to pay off and people are, are listening. Um Gosh, what else to tell you. Yeah, I, in in 2015, I was uh named number 87 on uh Randy Stapellis's uh list of 100 uh most influential Idahoans for 2015. Um
1: You're, You you were really making some waves in Idaho.
0: I was making <laughs>
1: On your little boat with the holes in it.
0: Yes, exactly. He referred to me as a boat rocker, and he, something, um, I can't remember exactly what he said in, in the page that he wrote up about me, but basically it said, you know, there are, are environmentalists and organizations that, you know, like to work hand in hand and work through the system and play nicey-nicey, and Alma Hattie is not one of them. She's a boat rocker. <laughs> I thought, that's a pretty accurate description. <laughs> um there's been several other things i I gave um, uh, Brett McDonald with uh, the New York Times a videographer with the New York Times came out here uh, as part of a series that the New York Times did on the Clean Water Act and Factory farms, and I was his Idaho person on the ground and gave him you know the the tours and introduced him to a lot of the people that he um, interviewed while he was out here. Uh, I actually was featured in the world premiere of um Uh, a news magazine, as they call it, in in Europe and France uh, by Guy Lagache called uh, Capitale and um, was his Idaho coordinator for what we, you know, the filming and interviews that they did out here when they were in Idaho. Um, I've just been, you know, my philosophy is is that if you see something that needs to be fixed, you just have to roll up your sleeves and, and go about it. And eventually other people will see that you need help. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, uh, and through outreach and through talking and through community organization and all of those things that you have to do, you will, you know, help will come. But you just have to make sure that, you know, don't, don't walk past it. Don't walk away. Don't look away. You know, if you see something that has to be addressed, it needs to be addressed do it. Um, and then other people will, will follow suit.
1: Did you grow up in Idaho?
0: I did not, actually. I was born and raised mm. in Kentucky, and my grandparents had a small family farm in Kentucky. I mean, they had, you know, the dairy goat, uh, uh, the dairy cow named Betsy, and, you know, grew crops and, you know, had chickens and livestock and what have you. And I was fortunate that I got to spend a lot of summers and a lot of weekends on, the, uh, on my grandparent's family farm. Um, but my husband and I moved to Idaho, actually from Southern California. Huh.
1: So what brought you there?
0: We, to Southern California?
1: Well, to, uh, to Idaho.
0: Oh, to Idaho. Um, you know, it was really interesting at the time. And I'm sort of ashamed to admit this to you, Ryan, but I will. When I was in Idaho, in fact, for all of my adult life, uh, I had been a very big part of the problem meaning that I was your ultimate capitalist. I was, you know, I had a new car every year, and my husband and I are, are business owners, and, you know, we just, we work really hard, and we felt like, you know, we should have all of those things that go along with working really, really hard. And I had no idea what was happening with the planet. I had no idea what, you know, the consumption of fossil fuels meant to the to the planet. I had no idea that my, what my lifestyle was doing to the planet. And so when I moved to Idaho um, and started fighting factory farms and that turned into activism and in oil and gas, and then of course, the more I learned about oil and gas, the more I was able to put together the link between oil and gas, you know, exploration and production and development and the, the, the climate change, what it's doing to the climate and I have a she well she's five now five year old granddaughter and every time I look at her and think what her potential future looks like it just it sends chills through me so I I feel like because I was such a big part of the problem for so long I have a lot of making up to do so I'm thankful that I moved to Idaho because had I had not moved to Idaho. I would probably still have my head firmly stuck down thousands of feet in the sand like so many others.
1: Well, this is really interesting to me because you, at some point, discovered that you needed to, as you say, roll up your sleeves. What, I mean, do you remember the tipping point for you? Like where you were and like what the specific thing was that really brought you in?
0: I do, and it had to do with my factory farm work. Um, I had, there was a lady uh, over in Washington County, Kathy Stone was her name, Sweetheart. And I had connected with her um, when I was trying to learn about, you know, factory farms and, you know, what was going on in Idaho. And because for the, you know, in the beginning, I just thought that this was just a local problem. I had no idea that it was a global problem. And so, in talking to Kathy and getting to know Kathy, um, I she involved me, for want of better words, in a lot of the um, goings on with the various agencies in Idaho. And one one day in particular stands out to me, and it always will. They we had a bunch of our organizations, the environmental organizations, and the Department of Ag and our Department of Environmental Quality. Who were digging up a uh, a line at this particular feedlot that was suspected of poisoning and contaminating dozens of wells in this community, and EPA was actually EPA criminal investigators were on site while this was going on, and we uncovered um, a pipe that had been connected. To a um, a drainage pipe that drained into the uh, to the Payette River, and and it also acted as sort of like a cesspool. cesspool pits and had all of this uh seepage uh in the, the vicinity that where there were area uh water wells as well so we we basically thought I was super excited I thought oh my gosh this is a smoking gun right we have these federal investigators here and they're going to go after this guy and they're going to shut him down and uh and they seemed quite you know excited when we uncovered all of this and they said, well, we are jumping our cars and we're going to go find this guy. And I mean, I was literally jumping up and down for joy and hugging Kathy and saying, oh my gosh, they're finally going to put a stop to this, right? And and she was just monotone and said, we'll see, we'll see. She kept repeating that, we'll see. And I couldn't understand why she wasn't excited as I was. And then they came back, those federal investigators, <laughs> about 45 minutes later, and they said, well, we are very sorry, but this isn't a groundwater issue, so our hands are tied and there is nothing that we can do. And that that's almost a quote, and that's almost verbatim what they had to say. I couldn't believe it. I, could, I mean, there are, you were talking, you know, dozens of families who had been severely impacted by this operation. And even though we uncovered the, the proof, what this guy had done, what he was currently doing, they couldn't do anything about it. And nor did our Department of Environmental Quality, nor did our uh Department of Agriculture. And I and I remember thinking, Oh my God, you know, this is America. You're not supposed to be able to do those kinds of things. You know, if I as an ordinary citizen went out and dumped something that found its way to a stream or the ocean, I'd be prosecuted but fined heavily, you know, as a private citizen, but yet a corporate corporate agribusiness can do these things and just walk away with with not even a slap on the wrist it just it just dumbfounded me and that day i just i remember thinking well you know what they might ultimately win But by golly, I'm going to do everything in my power to expose what these guys do and how they do business and how they make their money and how they screw over communities and individuals in the process. In fact, that's their very business model. And if they weren't able to do that, they they wouldn't be in business. I mean, if they had to conduct their business on the up and up, like my husband and I have to run our businesses, they would be out of business. And that's what so many people don't understand about not only factory farms, but, but even more so um, fossil fuel, um, you know, oil and gas companies, their, their business model absolutely depends on their ability to externalize the bulk of their costs and internalize their profits. If they weren't, if they couldn't, and of course, all those subsidies that they get, and if they couldn't do that, they wouldn't be in business. And we, the, the people suffer because of that,
1: so the factory farm is causing problems with runoff uh, water quality um hundred maybe hundreds of thousands of cattle right inside buildings
0: oh yes yes you have where well, you have all aspects with factory farms you've got the the pigs and chickens that are housed you know generally under a roof right, and then right. you've got uh your uh, dairy cows and beef cattle that are generally out, you know, in, out in, uh, on lots or, you know, on, under shade structures, that sort of thing. But, you know, here in Idaho, we actually have more dairy cows than we have people, <laughs> way more dairy cows than we have people actually. So, I mean, and, Not to
1: mention like the conditions that these animals are in is really horrifying and, it, it, and uh,
0: it is, and if people the had, quality of
1: food that it produces is not good quality, the impacts it has on the environment is bad. the residents you know everybody around it is are being impacted
0: That's absolutely correct it, If people had any idea what they fed these cattle in these factory farms uh they would never eat another piece of beef in their life <laughs> or, or they would they would make sure that whatever they were eating, they knew where it came from and how it was fed. Um, you know, there well, are even
1: said yourself that you had your head in the sand, you know. Oh, I like and I understand that. It it's comfortable. <laughs>
0: sure, sure. In fact, there are so, days, Ryan, where I kind of wish I could go back just for a few minutes <laughs> just for you know, maybe half right. hour and stick my head back in the sand and then pull it back out. But um, you know, there are so many people out there that are, you know, that, that are ignorant and then, you know, and I, I classify ignorance into two different um groups i i the people who are truly ignorant who do not know and then there are people who i call them willfully ignorant who once you try to um, give them the facts they absolutely refuse to acknowledge the facts <laughs> and i call i refer to those people as being willfully ignorant and and have found unfortunately that with a few exceptions, but for the most part, those people who are willfully ignorant, it is very hard to get them to see the truth in anything. You know, the world, they see the world through their lens, and regardless of what kind of um, facts and proof and evidence there is to the contrary, and that's that's kind of sad. It makes, makes, you know, being an activist a a little more difficult and a little more challenging.
1: Well, what are some of the other things that are challenging about it for you?
0: Um, For being an activist, it is, I I think the hardest thing for me is when you find yourself in situations, and I have a few times, where you feel like you're actually doing battle with uh, an oil and gas company CEO, for example, but in fact, you are talking to uh, an organization or one of the you, the own members of your group who is supposed to be on your side. <laughs> and because, you know, we mentally, we are prepared to do battle with the other side because we do that all day long. And we know that, you know, the only way that they stay in business is through their you know, tobacco industry model and lie and lie and lie and spin and spin and spin. And so we know that. We expect that. But it's really difficult when we're forced into some sort of a lockdown battle with other environmental organizations or advocacy groups or even within members of your own group who see... Uh, things very differently than, than you do. That is really hard. It's hard for me. And I, and I suspect it's hard for a lot of people because, you know, we only have so much energy and we, we put forth so much energy every day in this work. You know, we, we have to save it for those, you know, doing bit battle with the bad guys and so every ounce of energy that we have to expend doing battle amongst ourselves is is hurtful it's painful and and you know in my opinion is just downright unnecessary um you know i mean i don't understand why this is but it, i've seen several situations where people you know environmentalist activists just weren't able to say, okay, we see this differently. We'll just have to shake hands and agree to disagree. Um, They just weren't capable of doing that. And that, you know, there are those times in all of our lives that we just have to do that. And, and it's best for everyone to do that. But that seems to be hard for some people. And I, and I almost think the reason is because those of us who do this work, uh, you, you have to be, you know, you have to be securing yourself and you have to be not afraid to, you know, get muddy, get dirty, so to speak, because, you know, you, you know, people are going to be taking shots at you. They're going to be slinging stuff at you. They're going to be, you know, I mean, that's just that's a daily occurrence. So because of that, you know, we're kind of hardwired just to keep charging forward. But we have to learn and realize that as activists, engaged in a uh, a global goal to get where we need to be, there are those days when we're just going to have to say, you know, I feel pretty strongly about this, but, you know, it's for the greater good that I'm going to step back and, you know, just, choose to see this through someone else's lens or I, well, I, maybe I don't agree, but I'm going to say, okay, so the consensus is let move forward this way. You know, I don't necessarily agree with that, but you know what, that's okay. Because a lot of other folks do. So let's, you know, I'm okay with doing that. That seems to be difficult for some activists. And, um, and I don't know why that is, you know, it, it I, I wish I knew the answer because I guess if I knew the answer then we could figure out a way to sort of help people walk past that when they need to but I I haven't been able to figure that out um you know it it it, it cuz it hurts us it hurts us in the long run you know we have to we have to keep that bigger goal in mind and if we lose sight of that through our own egos or our stubbornness or, you know, whatever it might be, everyone, you know, pays the price for that. We are, we're all hurt by that because it slows us down. And in some cases I think it even stops people because I think there are people who leave organizations and this work because they've been left with a bad feeling as to how things were dealt with. And, you know, when they, probably could have been dealt with, you know, in a much more um, positive, supportive manner.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that really speaks for the importance of building a movement and the role of people like mediators or or facilitators at meetings, Um, you know, the kind of leadership that is designed to bring people in, draw them in and draw them out.
0: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it I, I wish we saw, you know, that's actually a really good point, Ryan. That I I almost feel like and of course this isn't impossible, but in an ideal world, if every meeting of every group, no matter what size, had that person in their midst who was the de- designated facilitator and could bridge all of those communications that we would be light years ahead <laughs> of where we're at right now. Um, and and I'm not saying it's a pervasive problem. I don't think it's a pervasive problem. I think given that, you know, most of us in the trenches and most of us doing this work are, you know, volunteers. And, you know, not only are we not paid, but, you know, we're we're – putting money out of our own pocket to do this work and our time and all of those other things. And and we don't have the media representatives to, you know, tell us how to conduct an interview. And, you know, we just don't have those things. So, you know, we're like, we're like the activist, the, you know, the MacGyver version of the activist with absolutely, you know, not much clue and just throwing things together with a hope and a prayer that they're going to work. <laughs> so it, right, like know, A lot
1: of times we're just winging it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Through tenacity, basically, I think is is the main reason why is, you know, one thing about activists, you get a bunch of activists in the room and I can I can tell you with certainty that every one of them is going to be tenacious. And that's a good thing. Um Sometimes we just have to back off on being quite so tenacious when, you know, we we need to develop that consensus. But, you know, that's a very astute point that you made and one that um, I would hope that other activists, if they're listening to this, would really, you know, chew on that. And and, as we say, when we're working with horses, let that soak. And. you know, think think about how, you know, think about a situation that you found yourself in where you just vehemently disagreed, but yet maybe, you know, the, the bulk of the other folks' opinion was, well, this is probably a better way to go, and, you know, how, how that was dealt with. Did you facilitate that, or did you slow things down, or did you get mad and walk away and, you know, leave everybody scratching their head and, you know... Um, Pride can be a good thing, but pride in this work is generally not such a good thing, I don't think, because, you know, we have to keep that, we, we, we have to stop thinking in terms of I and always think in terms of we, and, this, and when we start thinking like that, you know, it is amazing how much clearer our vision becomes.
1: going to take a quick break. The program is not over. In the second half, Alma continues to tell her story. and It gets really interesting because she actually reveals something. She moved to Idaho thinking that she would be completely, uh, as she says, pigs in a blanket. <laughs> what happened was a complete transformation of the way that she understood politics, her own experience, um, the context of this work. A lot of this started when she was arrested for speaking out at a public hearing and the way that she was treated and then the support that she got from her community to get through that trial. So stay tuned for the second half of our program. And I just want to invite you to visit howtheharm.net to learn more about the services and the tools that are provided. Just recognize that some of you listening may not be so familiar with the network. So check it out and get acquainted. It's really an amazing service. That's at healththeharm.net. It's totally free, yet incredibly valuable. Sign up today at healththeharm.net. Okay, back to the second part of our program. What are some of the things that have inspired you to take the leadership that you've taken in this in this issue?
0: Well, you know, again, it's really funny because moving to Idaho has been a real blessing for me. And the reason is because, you know, when I moved here, both my husband and I thought we were going to be, you know, for want of better terms, pigs in a blanket, you know, I thought I was a conservative Republican moving to a conservative state. And so therefore, I thought that, you know, that we were going to be, you know, just ecstatic living here. I quickly found out that uh, I was neither a conservative Republican, nor was Idaho a conservative state. <laughs> so, and in fact, I, what I learned was that my my um, mental picture of that word conservative was as actually nothing like what it what it really is and what it should be. And so when I when we moved here, and I realized that. You know, we were and it took a while. Actually, I'll be totally honest with you, Ryan, for the for the first in the oil and gas issue, the first couple of years, it took me um, a lot of false starts, for want of better words, to realize that the only way that I was going to get a certain segment of folks in Idaho to listen to to the important message that, that they needed to hear and that we were trying to deliver was to couch it in such a manner that they didn't immediately shut me out. And I'll, and and the best way that I can describe that to you is that I couldn't use the word environment. Environment in Idaho is a bad word to some people. And that's not the way it should be. That's that's reality on ground here in some areas in Idaho. If you, if you're, you know, I consider an environmentalist a great thing. Now, I mean, I worship the ground they walk on, but I didn't for a long time. But and there are still people who don't. So if you if you start out a conversation with someone talking about the environment with a farmer in Payette County, for example, he's going to look at you and scratch his head and say, you know, have a good day, <laughs> walk away. Yet, if I start, I can say the same thing to him without using that E word by saying, John, you know what, with this oil and gas development, if they have a, uh, if their casing is faulty and that stuff gets, gets comes into your, you know, goes, goes comes in, um, out of the aquifer and, and comes up in through your water well or your irrigation well, what's that going to do to your crops? What's that going to do to your cattle? You know, what kind of impact is that going to have? To your farm and the, and your property values if your water's not good, you know, then they're listening. <laughs> so I've never, you know, I didn't say the word environment in that whole conversation, but that's exactly what I talked about. So, you know, that was really difficult for me. And I think it's difficult for a lot of people in this work is that, you know, we see so clearly all of the impacts from fossil fuel development. And we just want to go up there and stand on the highest mountain with bullhorn and, and yell and everybody should listen. But the reality is, is that there's a whole lot of the population that are not going to hear a word we have to say until we couch it in those terms that they're able to hear. And That was the hardest thing for me to learn coming in in Idaho. But once I learned it, it has been by far the best thing that I have learned because we have, as members of our organization, we have people who, you know, consider themselves pretty hardcore conservative folks. Um, We have. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. We had in, We had held a rally rally on the steps of the State House last, um, we were fighting, it's called Senate Bill 1339, it's an atrocious bill that unfortunately got passed here in Idaho, but we held a, a rally in opposition and at the podium during the same rally, we had a representative from the Sierra Club. And we had a representative with an organization called Oath Keepers, which most people consider a very conservative, you know, slash Republican-leaning organization. But at, during this rally at the state house, we had members from both of those organizations taking turns at the podium and speaking at this rally and and i'm pretty proud of that actually because i think that until we get people thinking in terms of we and um and instead of i i i and they 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 we're never going to solve the problems that need to be solved <laughs> it's not going to happen so we have to bridge that gap and i firmly believe that you know as americans we have way more in common than not with most people. So I can have a conversation with pretty much anybody on the face of the planet and say to them, you know, I care about the world my grandbaby grows up in. I care that she has, you know, uh, air that she can breathe that's not going to give her asthma. I care that she has, you know, clean water to drink and that she doesn't have to pay 10 bucks a gallon for it when she's 23. And almost everybody on the face of the planet would agree with those things. So that's what we have to do as activists. We have to seek out that common ground with other people and try and see things through their eyes when necessary in order to facilitate those conversations and start that dialogue. Because once their ears are open, once you get that dialogue started, and once they start to see, well, maybe things aren't as rosy as my rose-colored glasses would have me believe, once you get them thinking, you've just created another activist. They might not admit it in many years. We've got people in our in our organization who, you know, if you were to call them an activist, they would bristle and, you know, I'm not an activist. But by golly, they're writing letters to the governor, they're calling his office, they're writing their representatives, they're attending rallies. That's Sounds to me like the very definition of an activist. <laughs> so, you know, and that's how you create them. You don't do it by saying it's my way or the highway and by golly, you're wrong and I'm right, because you're never gonna you're gonna make enemies is what you're gonna make. You're not gonna make allies. And until you make those allies and you bridge those bridges and you bring people on board, that's when you start to see change. That's what it takes. And that I'm I'm real happy to say is what what we're seeing happening here in idaho, and and a lot of it has to do with depending on where we're at in the state, that you know sort of dictates how we apply our message. But you know, if we're in a really heavily conservative area, the bulk of what we're going to be talking about are our private property rights and values and your personal freedoms and responsibilities and rights. Now, if we're in an area in Boise, for example, on campus or something like that, you know we'll we'll talk about the environment. we'll talk about clean air, we'll talk about clean water and we'll talk about those things. But you know in other areas of the state that are that are much more conservative, we're going to talk about those that are also impacted with oil and gas development, and that's those private property rights and you know your personal freedoms and eminent domains, and all of those other things that go hand in hand with with uh, fossil fuel production. And that's the message that gets people's attention in those areas.
1: Mm -hmm. So you're focused on being strategic. Yes. And uh, I imagine it can be really challenging to work with people who, you know, maybe don't share very many of the same values. And you have to set aside a big part of the things that you care about in order to get that strategic Alliance there, you know, to make those issues known.
0: Yep, you absolutely have to, and and you know in that situation, you know you can you can take one one or two paths. You can take the path of well, you know the my way or the highway path, which you know there you go down your own merry road, and maybe you got a couple other people with you, or you can take the path that leads to uh, unifying communities and building bridges and building alliances and you know creating an organization. Um, and so for me, it used to be more difficult. It's not as difficult today because, you know, it's, it's like anything else, you know, practice makes perfect. And as you apply those principles and once you, once in your mind, once you get it in your mind's eye that my Pride and my personal feelings, while they may be important to me on any given day, what's ultimately important to me is that we, in fossil fuel development, and we move towards sustainable, a sustainable global community that our children and grandchildren and great grandchildren, seven generations past them, will be able to survive in and thrive in. Not just survive, but thrive. And the way we're going now uh, is the exact opposite from that. So, you know, if I would just encourage people who do this work to develop, you know, maybe for me, it's just, it's simple. It's a, you know, it's a mental picture of my grandbaby, quite honestly, you know, when I think about her and her future, whatever pride is there for me, it gets easier to set aside because, you know, I want her to grow up in that Global community and what she's able to thrive, and so is my pride important in that ser- scenario in that situation? Hell no, <laughs> it's not. So it, it and it just takes some practice, and and but ultimately, Ryan, I'm here to tell you that the more you practice it, and the, the 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 more you realize what the true priorities are, the better you'll feel about the work. And the better you'll you'll feel about your your fellow activist and 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 yourself as an individual, you know I feel like I still haven't I you know, I'll never make up for having my head in the sand all those years, but I do feel like I'm starting to atone somewhat. I'll never make it all up <laughs> but but at least I have some more um uh good energy on the side whereas in the past i've had none (laughs) so it's just you know it's a matter of what is important to you if you're if your pride is the only thing that's important to you my advice would be to get the hell out of this work and go do something else (laughs) because you know you you if you can't look at the bigger picture and understand the importance and the significance of what needs to be done uh, to save our planet and save our kids and our grandkids and those seven generations beyond them, future, then you, you, you don't need to be here. Those are the people we need doing this work, the ones who are, who are selfless and who who's, you know, doing it for the right reasons. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of people come to it because it's a not-in-my-backyard kind of thing. You know, a lot of people start out uh, as activists, and the reason that they became well, I'm a perfect example of that. It started out with that factory farm in my backyard. Some of us luckily realize that, you know, at some point in time that there's a bigger global picture. Uh and some never do. You know, those people you generally don't stay activists very long once that threat the immediate threat to them is passed, then they'll go on, you know, they'll go back to their life. But um I, I would I would like to think that that most people, once they're, you know, knocked upside the head with situations (laughs) that totally upends their their normal world, so to speak, uh, and they've done their research and their investigation and, you know, they see how the world really functions and how corporations really control us uh, or try to control us, then, you know, they'll they'll make those decisions that are right for them and do what they can and continue to remain engaged and involved. You know, not everybody can spend every waking moment doing this. And, you know, some people only have maybe a few hours uh, a month. But, you know, everybody, regardless of what their level of involvement can be, if their heart is in the right place they have a lot to give whether it's two hours a month or or 20 hours a week or 60 hours a week you know if we all give what we can with keeping that the that our ultimate goal in mind which is where we need to to move to and what we need to get away from then we will get there a whole lot quicker and I would just encourage everybody to try to see their work and view their 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 world, if you will, and their activism and their work through that lens. And it and it makes it it makes it easier when you step back and look at that big picture. You know, sometimes it's hard to see the forest through those trees. But you know, once you get that bigger that, that forest in mind it becomes a whole lot easier to, to do the right thing. Most of the time, you know, I still fall down and stumble and then I get up and kick myself and go, what were you thinking? (laughs) But, um, again, then I get that mental picture of my grandbaby and it's like, okay, you know, yeah, you got to do this and it's for the greater good of everybody else. And whether you like it or not, it's the best thing to do.
1: Absolutely. And, and, so you're bringing a lawsuit to Payette County. Mm-hmm. How how can people support you in that work?
0: Well, you know the the nice thing about um, with my lawsuit is that I have a really great group of um, uh, a law firm behind me, and who believe in you know. Um, That my civil rights were trampled on, were pretty outraged. As you know, what had happened to me when I was arrested, uh, a a friend of mine who is the legal director of the ACLU of Idaho, Richie Epic, he put the word out to to folks that you know about what had happened to me, and. There were a bunch, I mean, a couple dozen, from what I understand, attorneys who volunteered their efforts pro bono to represent me in the criminal case before Payette County dropped the charges. So I I actually had a team of attorneys representing me, all of whom were working pro bono. And the more people that learned about what had happened to me the, and they were outraged about it. And not only were they outraged about it, but they came to my defense. So, um, I think my outcome with the charges being dropped would possibly have been different had I not have had this excellent representation that I was fortunate enough to have. It's it, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. You know, when you have Support of your community, and not only did I have support of my community, what I didn't know until I got out eight days later was that I guess there were people from across the globe who were writing and calling our sheriff's department at one point our our sheriff told my husband that uh to please have all these people stop calling because they couldn't get any work because the phones were ringing off the hook, so yeah I got lots of support, and you know it um and and continue to receive lots of support so I'm not quite certain if that answers your question, but you know i don't I really don't need anybody to you know contribute to my legal fund or anything like that because my attorneys are you know they're they're taking really good care of me and I would say that if anybody felt compelled that they wanted to contribute in some way shape or form, I would say you know, put that money into your community and into your work or helping those people who find themselves in situations that where they do need to pay an attorney out of their pocket, you know, put that money to work there because those folks need it. Um, and, and if my situation changes, I'll definitely let you know. But right now, I think I'm good to go.
1: <laughs> and I realized we didn't really share this story of about getting arrested at the public hearing. That sounds like it completely surprised you,
0: oh my god, it did um i well one of the things that that we haven't talked about Ryan that that is pertinent to this particular piece of our conversation is I'm a veteran, I served in the army i I voluntarily enlisted you know I was willing to lay my life down for my country, and I considered myself a very patriotic individual, and so When what happened was that I had went to speak at this public meeting. Now, mind you, Payette County is like the smallest county in Idaho. Um, I can walk into the courthouse and I guarantee you that 90% of the people who work in that courthouse know me on site by my first name. So the, the, when I, when I went to testify at this public hearing, I signed in. You know, have you have to when you speak at a public hearing? You have to, you know, sign your name and what have you. And so I had signed in, and I gave my testimony during the um, public hearing portion of this meeting. Then they closed the public hearing, and when it went into discussion or a, a closed part of their of their P and Z meeting and they chose that particular time instead of asking me questions when i was giving testimony and they could have asked me and those questions and answers would have been recorded they chose to wait until the public portion of this meeting was closed and launch into basically a character assassination of me and i i stood up and i said point of order because I didn't think that was right and I was told to sit down and I said no I said you know what you're doing is not right it's not right that you know if you're going to say these things about me I should have an opportunity to defend myself and they said you know sit down and and uh, actually at that point in time they just me to leave and I said I'm not leaving this is a public public hearing a public meeting and a public building, which happens to be the courthouse, my tax dollars helped to pay for. for, uh, and I'm not leaving. And they said, oh, if you don't leave, you're going to be arrested. And I said, I'm not leaving. And sure enough, they called the deputies, and the deputy came and said, you got to leave. And I said, I'm not leaving. <laughs> it's a public building. It's a public meeting. I, I am not leaving. And so they handcuffed me and escorted me out and, and uh, took me to jail. And basically they they kept they as part of the formal booking process they you they they, they asked you your name and I said and it just incensed me quite frankly because it was like they know my name. They know who I am. And if they didn't know my name it's on the sheet of paper that I had to sign in to testify. And so I said you know, I I quickly said, you know, I wanna to talk to my attorney because at this point I'm rather you know, I, I'm I'm very upset that this whole thing has went down. It shouldn't have happened. So I said, you know, I finally started saying, I, I want to talk to my attorney. I want to talk to my attorney. I'm not going to talk to you until I talk to my attorney. And they said, well, you can't, we can't do anything until you give us your name. And I said, I want to talk to my attorney. And so... This went on for I don't know, the better part of a couple of hours, and then they brought me in a jail uniform and some sandals and said, "You're, you know, we're taking you to a cell." And, and at that point, I remember thinking, "I can't believe this! I just cannot believe this that they're doing this." And so they took me to the solitary confinement version of a cell. It's a line cell. It's just you and, um, a, a bed with what they call a mattress. I wouldn't call it a mattress, but that was disgusting and um put me in there. And the next morning I woke up and I was, I, I was a lot of things. I was upset. I was mad. I was the furious, probably would be a better description. You know, I was um in, to- I was in shock. I was in disbelief that in our country, these things could, could happen. And And I woke up to find a copy of my citation with my name on it. (laughs) So so they they had my name. They knew my name. And in fact, one of the things that was most infuriating is I actually have a concealed carry permit. And as part of the concealed carry permit process, you have to go to the sheriff and you have to have your fingerprints taken. And in my case, I gave them a copy of my DD 214, which is my army discharge paperwork, so that so that I could get my concealed carry permit. So they know who I was. And not only did they know who I was, but they have my date of birth, my social security number, my fingerprints, you name it, they had it. And so this dog and pony show that they put me through, which, in my opinion, was just done for sheer retaliation because they did not like the fact that I was speaking out was ridiculous. And so when they brought me breakfast, I, uh, I was so upset. I I wasn't hungry. I wasn't hungry at all. Come lunchtime. I was still extremely upset. I'm still really mad. And I thought, you know what, you guys, you have me in here, and there's not a whole lot I can do about that. But the one thing that I do have control over in here is whether or not I eat. So I refused food for the entire eight days that I was in jail. I went on a hunger strike <laughs> out of, based on principle. And, um, yeah, I, I because it was, you know, there wasn't anything else I could do, you know, um, I I was stuck there and they weren't going to let me out until I cooperated with their process. And so they didn't, you know, they wouldn't let me call an attorney. They didn't let my husband see me. They would not even let my husband bring me clean undergarments, if you can believe that. And it was all the more infuriating to me because I am a veteran and I served my country, and I was willing to lay down my life for this for my country. And I can guarantee you, it wasn't so that people would have their most basic freedom stripped from them like I did. You know that's not supposed to happen in our country. And you know, and you asked a question earlier, Ryan, about those. Were there some things that I could turn to that solidified my decision to be an activist and to do this this work? I told you about the first one, which is when I was doing the factory farm work. As it pertains to oil and gas work, it was being thrown in jail um, that I will always do this work and I will always speak wherever I can and to whomever I can about the the egregious behavior uh, of some elected officials and some law enforcement officials
2: and
0: the, the, that corporate mentality and the, 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 you know, the, the, the fascism slash oligarchy, whatever you want to call it that allows this to, to happen because it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't, have, it shouldn't have happened to me. It shouldn't happen to anybody in this country where we're supposed to have these basic rights and freedoms, including, you know, a freedom of speech and including our, you know, um, Miranda rights and all of these things that a lot of people assume that we still have, that I am here to tell you are quickly going the way of the dinosaur. And unless we as a people, as a group of people, stand up and say not only no, but hell no, we're not going to let you do this, um, I see the edge of a cliff. And it is, we're approaching it pretty rapidly. And I, it scares the hell out of me. It really does. Because these things are not supposed to happen. And they do. And in my case, they did. And so. You know, um, it, it, I will fill my dying breath. <laughs> I will fight these guys. I will speak out. I will do everything that I humanly, physically, possibly can to right that situation for, for my grandbaby and for your potential future grandbabies and for everybody else's. Because if we, if we do nothing, if we stand with our, with our eyes shut tight and our hands over our ears and our mouth sealed tight, um, then then we're going to get pushed off that cliff real fast. And um, I you know, I don't know about you, but I got my heels in the in the ground, and man, I am fighting with, with every ounce of my energy that, that I can possibly muster to stop that from happening. Uh, and I hope everybody else is too, because the what could happen if we don't it just scares scares the heck out of me. You know, it it the, this the, the country that we were all born and raised in, it, that I was born and raised in, that you were born and raised in, Ryan. Quite frankly, uh, it, as we know it, is it, not there. It, it, it's not there. It's gone, and and we've got to reclaim it. And, you know, I think we have a, you know, we have a moral obligation to do that um, because if we don't, the repercussions for future generations are horrific. And, you know, I, I, I'm i going to do everything I can to stop that from happening. And by them jailing me, um, they have reinforced <laughs> that I will continue to do this work until the day that I die, because it is that important to me. And when you, you know, when you've had your freedoms taken away from you like that, you, it's a, you know, if you've forgotten what they're about, man, you learn real quick (laughs) because when you have no control over, when you can go to the bathroom and, you know, what you can do when you eat or, you know, um, basic freedoms like that, when you lose those for, for no reason, um, it really drives home the fact that we have to do everything that we can to reclaim those freedoms and make sure they continue exist to exist for future generations. Because if we don't, we know they'll be gone. We can just kiss them goodbye. And I'm not willing to do that. So um, anyway, I don't know if that answers your question or not.
1: But <laughs> it totally does. And I've, you know, I, I relate to what you're saying, and I and I've heard this a lot in the anti-fracking movement too. Because, uh, you know, and th- this country was founded on injustice, right? There's a history of slavery. There's there's colonization here, and so for many of us who grew up being taught that everything is okay and everything is just, you know, this is a real slap in the face. But it's also an opportunity to really contextualize the entire history of what's going on here and why
0: that is so true Ryan and very well said the i think that that most of us cuz i like you you know thought that i i had while we were not uh rich in fact you know we were we were poor when i was a kid but we were rich in the sense that I grew up thinking that, you know, I could do anything that I wanted to do and be anybody that I wanted to be. And um, I don't think that now. I don't think that for my grandbaby. I don't think that for anybody. I think that the system has been rigged against us. And, And it's been rigged against a lot of different races over the course of our history. But, you know, as we... Um, you know, some of us, uh, some of us white folks uh, have been fortunate in the sense that, you know, we never had to experience that, you know, levels of racism and prejudice and and what have you that people of color have dealt with and are, you know, the uh, First Nations people have dealt with for, you know, decades. So, you know, I guess if there is a silver lining here for me, that's, Silver lining would be that I, well, I can, I would be foolish to think that I could ever say I know how they feel because I don't, I really don't. And I never will. But I have a better sense of what it must be like for people of color and first nations folks and the people who have been dealing with, you know, outright discrimination and bias and prejudice for, for, you know, since history uh, you know for a very long time and so it makes it like for example seeing what's happening with the Dakota Access Pipeline for me is like I that brings such joy to me every story that I read every tribe that I hear about that sent a letter of support or is sending a delegation or you know I see that and I think oh in fact I got goosebumps right now it's like there is hope for us because if we can unite as a people like that, and especially the First Nations people, given what what we have done to them for, you know, since we colonized this continent, um, there's 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 a lot of you know if 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 they can come together the way that they came together and bring and not just other not just other um, um, Native Americans, but but people like myself and. People from across the globe that are united in their their um, their effort to stop this pipeline that that is not has the potential that will eventually impact them and and their communities and their water sources and their their sacred sites. That's that you know to see what's happening at the scale that it's happening is it's a wonderful thing and it should be a beacon for all of us to, to know that if we can continue this and look at what it's based on, Ryan, it's based on, it's based on nonviolence. It's based on, you know, basically um, um, civil disobedience in the sense that, you know, they're not, they're, they're, you know, they're standing there, they're standing their ground. They're, they're, they're making their voices heard about, what what impacts this is going to have. They're not letting law enforcement intimidate them. I've seen some pictures and I'm sure you have too, where law enforcement is in the line and staring them down and they've got their guns on their side and, you know, and, and the first nations folks are just standing there and, you know, and basically talking to them about the impacts and what this project is going to do to them and their lifestyle and their culture and their history and their water and their health and all of these things that are near and dear to them. And, um, I think that it, I don't know, it, to me, that means that we, we're going to get there. And because when we unite like this, as a people, nobody can stop us. We're unstoppable. As a people united, we are unstoppable. And that's what, uh, so I guess in a way, we should thank the oil and gas industry because if it weren't for them and their egregious business practices and their, their trampling and steamrolling of our most basic rights and freedoms, um, we wouldn't be able to unite like this. So you know what? Exxon, thank you. (laughs) Look what you've created. And it is a good thing.
1: (laughs) Wow. I mean, I've never heard anybody reframe it like that, but I'm going to go with that because, uh, you know, I, I think you're right that it's uh, with all the history of injustice, the fact that so many people are being forced to wake up, you know, who might not have been standing in solidarity with the First Nations communities that are, you know, for example, right now resisting that pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know, I, I agree. You know, now is an opportunity if we're building a movement to protect the land, then let's stand together and let's put that into context
0: exactly i want to learn more i want to um find out you know about you know that that um that that history the the belief system the you know all of those things that are near and dear to them that i as as a as a white woman growing up um never even gave a second thought to. Yet it's just it's ingrained in them and their culture. And I wish it was ingrained in all of us and in all of our culture and we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. So yeah, hats off to them and I am I am so pleased to see what's happening there with that, you know, how they have turned this adversity into, you know, the movement was has been there, but they have I think this this the whole dakota access pipeline and their their united opposition and how they have handled it has taken this movement to to the next level to that we needed to go to because we needed to realize as a as a, as a collective group of people that we can do this with dignity we can do this with respect and we can do this without violence and we can do this with, by uniting people and not tearing down people. And to me, that's exactly how they've gone ab- about it. And it's inspiring. Um, I will tell you that I would love to be, um, I'd love to be in a tent there right now. <laughs> and, and if I weren't going to Washington, D.C. next week, I would be there right now <laughs> because it I am, I am so in awe of what they're doing and and how they have created this group of people, not only First Nations people, but people uh from the the fossil fuel, you know, the keep it in the ground movement and just people outside of, you know, who aren't involved in this industry. I've had several conversations with people who have been following what they're doing, who aren't necessarily passionate one way or the other about oil and gas development. But they are totally on board with what the First Nations people are doing in standing up for their way of life. And, and that, that's a wonderful thing.
1: Where can people find out more about you?
0: We, I am one of the founding members of an organization called Citizens Allied for Integrity and Accountability. And we have a website, which is www.integrityandaccountability.org. And we actually have a lot of information up on that website. And we've also started another website called don'tfrackidaho.org. And those are two really good sites. Um, the, our, our the Kaya site, the Integrity and Accountability .dot uh, org website, has a lot of information that people who like I am and maybe in more conservative areas of the country would find I think very beneficial and useful to them. I mean, we've got a lot of stuff on you know the public health impacts, which are horrendous, as you know um you know the air water ha- impacts, the 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 water impacts i mean we all know what those are but for folks in conservative rural uh, america who are engaged in this battle the arguments about clean air and clean water probably aren't your the arguments that are going to get you where you need to be, at least not initially. So that website it would be a very good resource for folks who want to um, learn about the private property rights aspects and, you know, how to couch that message and, and how to uh, engage people, you know, engage folks uh, with that, with the private property rights and personal freedoms uh, message, which is, which is very powerful. In in conservative rural America, because those are the things that they care about the most. You know, some of us care more about you know Mother Earth and clean air and clean water. And then there's another subset of uh, subset of Americans who, you know, that isn't the first thing that comes to their mind. But they do give a damn what happens to their property, and by golly, they don't want somebody to be able to tell them what they can do on their property. And we've got to talk to all of those folks. So. That website is a really good one for folks who want to have those discussions in conservative rural America.
1: And I'll make sure to post these links in the show notes for this episode. So anyone who's listening, uh, rest assured you'll you'll be able to get those.
0: Appreciate that. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Alma, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me and, and for speaking with all of us here, for sharing your story and, and uh, your wisdom.
0: It was my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me, and thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it.
1: For sure. Well, and big thanks, too, for Health the Harm Network for creating a shared pool of resources and, uh, you know, contact information and just bringing a lot of different people together.
0: Yes, absolutely. They, I mean, you guys are doing brilliant work, and it's work that those of us at the trenches couldn't do without that Support. So, you know, I know I speak on behalf of a lot of other activists out there when I say thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our collective hearts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, have a great day.
0: You too, Ryan.
1: All right. That does it for this episode of Health the Harm podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And of course, find out more about Health the Harm Network at halttheharm.net. And stay tuned for more episodes. Take care.